Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We, we select band, I should say. Group, a small uh, The first announcement I have to make is that the PA system is not working. So I would encourage you to move to the front if you think you might have any trouble in hearing. Any takers for moving to the front? <laughs> no? All right. Um, as you all know, this is the second of three talks that Keith Critchlow is giving in a series. And um, tonight, is, the subject is Chinese architecture. When I introduced Keith at the first lecture, I spoke briefly of my privilege of being an acquaintance and a friend of Keith for many, many years, and I spoke about his work in the past and about the origins of Temenos, the journal, and then on to the Academy. And this evening, I'd like to introduce him by just saying a few words about a, a, a motif or an image that Keith has nearly always used in the past. He didn't actually refer to it um, in the last talk, uh, uh, only very briefly, in fact, but not fully. And I want to introduce him by, I hope these few words will indicate why I think the work that Keith does is absolutely of the essence of what Tenemos represents and is about. And the motif I want you to bear in mind is, is a tripartite motif. It's, it's, it consists of the knower, the known, that which is known, and the act of knowing. And it's the dynamic flow and interrelationship between these three things that I've often heard Keith talk about in the past, and which underlies pretty much everything I've heard him ever lecture about. One of the impulses which led to the formation of the Tamanos Academy was the growing recognition of the decline of education in this country, particularly so far as we were concerned, the universities. In fact, I've heard in recent weeks on the radio two of our very senior academics in senior universities make statements, one to the effect that our universities have been de-intellectualized. That's quite a confession for a senior academic make from one of our senior universities. And another gentleman said that the last 20 years, the universities have presided over the death of scholarship. And it's not a coincidence that with this decline in our universities, one would expect universities, given their name and their history, to teach universal knowledge, but they seem to do everything else other than that. So the rise, as it were, if I may put it like that, of the Tenemos Academy, to some extent took place against the background of the decline of the university. We wanted to teach the things that we, should, we felt that the university should be teaching, but we're no longer doing so. Of course, modern, the modern universities are embroiled in modern knowledge. And modern knowledge 
from the metaphysical perspective, modern knowledge is a quantitative knowledge, and it, it spreads out on the surface. It is concerned with measuring and weighing things. It tends to disperse itself on the surface, and it, it uh, loses itself in multiplicity, because it doesn't have access to the principle of unity, which is a purely metaphysical uh, principle. And of course, metaphysics is pretty much repudiated by our universities. Whereas traditional knowledge, and this is where this, this, tri this dynamic tripartite arrangement, as it were, comes into play, traditional knowledge doesn't so much concern itself with the surfaces of things, it's concerned with the essence of things. And therefore, it's a penetrative knowledge. And all traditional knowledge, as you'll see as, as uh, this will, uh, I don't doubt for one moment, become apparent from what Keith will say this evening. Traditional knowledge, in being concerned with going into the essence of things, recognizes that of this relationship, the crucial thing is the knower. In other words, the quality of the knower. In modern science, the quality of the person who does the knowing is hardly ever referred to in any way at all. But this is absolutely a crucial from the traditional perspective. In other words, what I'm saying is that, or I have to abbreviate an enormous amount of material, from the traditional perspective, knowledge and wisdom is a spiritual activity. It's not just a cerebral activity. And one of the wonderful things about Keith's talks on sacred geometry or architecture is how he's able to demonstrate in very lucid and uh, clear terms the way in which traditional societies have used the uh, sacred geometry to build the environment around them in terms of the reciprocity and the uh, mutual qualities between inner worlds and outer worlds, the physical world that you look out of, and the inner world such as you are. <coughs> and uh, the, this question of the knower is, uh, in traditional terms, is a recognition that reality is uh, a hierarchical structure. And one of, the, one of the things about Keith's talks and the pictures he shows is a demonstration of how this hierarchical knowledge, which inside the knower uh, consists of, as it were, states of being, how these are reflected in the outside world in the structures and forms of architecture using the medium of sacred geometry. Now, I think that's enough for me, so I'll leave the floor now to Keith and Chinese architecture. Um, I think that there's no um, power coming through here, so I'm going to sort of try and project my voice a bit. If you can't hear, put your hand up, um, and I'll try and speak a bit louder. But um, what I feel I ought to say is that I'm an amateur when it comes to Chinese architecture. But the word amateur is a very special word and mustn't be taken lightly. I'm a lover of it. I'm not a scholar. I can't read Chinese, and I can see one or two people who might be Chinese in the audience, so please forgive me if I, get some, I make some terrible bloomers. But 
I hope my love of it and, and what Chinese philosophy has done for me will come through. Um, there will be maybe two or three of you who can read what's on the wall already. If somebody can read it, they're very welcome to say what it says on the wall. They're being very shy, quite correctly. It means lung, it means dragon, and it's a blessing and energetic um, piece of calligraphy I managed to find in a shop in Chinatown in London, and I thought that would be a nice thing to have on the wall. Um, most intriguingly, uh, Lung is uh, rather like Brian was saying, um, Lung, the dragon, um, is one of the most fundamental bases of um, Chinese civilization. But as the dear man in the shop told me, he said, oh, but nobody's ever seen one. <laughs> so um, it's again this wonderful paradox between the spirit, which is totally apparent in everything, and the spirit, which is not apparent in anything. So there's a dragon painted in high speed. And what's so nice is that in this foundation where we are, some of my students in the audience, we teach um, Arabic calligraphy. We don't teach Chinese or Japanese calligraphy. But there's an extraordinary similarity to the process of doing calligraphy. In China, um, the projection of um, sound and images was never separated. And it still isn't separated. Um, and I have to say, when I, when I went to China quite recently, I was asked to go and talk about architecture, and I saw so many things around me which gave me such um, anxiety and sadness that I, I asked the students if I could talk about the things which I'd seen in China, which I felt I ought to say what I felt about. One of them was the neglect of agriculture. Um, as you can see in this little handout pamphlet, one of the hundred proverbs of the ancient Chinese, according to Lin Yutang, is good government is rooted in agriculture. Now, if you change the word agriculture to agribusiness, then I'm afraid you deserve what comes about. I mean, one doesn't want to get into um, the Ode to Shiva by <laughs> Kathleen Rain. <laughs> one might well read it. But um, in China, they have never separated um, visual pictures and sound from each other. A piece of calligraphy is that is a very beautiful modern uh, rendering of Lung, the dragon, and it's still very dragon-like. Um, and yet it's um, part of an extraordinary convention, an extraordinarily beautiful convention. But when I was there, and I was asked in Chongqing University to talk about China, to, to write Western architecture, in fact, I said I, I would I have to plead to you as an audience, because they're all young people, I said, God's sake, do not, do not lose your calligraphy for westernized um, IT and typewriters and, and, and computers. There, there is a big movement going on in China to actually um, Latinize the language so that they can join into the international um, uh, trade businesses and so forth. And uh, you only need to go to Wales to see how incredibly inadequate uh, Latinization of certain languages are. Anybody been in Wales recently and tried to read a direction sign? Klangolan over here, and you see the way Klangolan is written. Anyway, not to worry. I should talk about Chinese architecture, shouldn't I? Um, one, the other thing which I'm particularly keen to try and touch on is that there are, th there are three um, basic ways of thinking, um, as Brian was saying, ways of knowing in China, and 
schools, one might say, religions, one might say, although some people don't particularly like the word religion being attached to them. But in China, for many, many hundreds of years now, Confucianism, that's, that's not talking right up to date, I might say, Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism have all been um, traveling together. And it was perfectly okay and consistent for somebody, a scholar or a farmer, to participate in all three. It was never the same um, anxiety that we've had in the West. Um, what are you, a Protestant or a Catholic? And if you're a Catholic, you don't go in a Protestant church. If you're a Protestant, you, what were you doing in a Catholic church? That kind of separation has never been in China. China is extraordinary tolerance. The great tolerance of China, and it's equal to the great tolerance of India, that every, every influence that came into these major civilizations was absorbed. And, 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 and taken over by affection, one might say. When the Christians came to China, they didn't bring sores and chop everybody off who didn't become Christians. They just said, if you've got something to say, come, we'll, we'll listen. And so there's a little bit of Islam established in China, there's a little bit of Christianity established in China and so forth. I won't go into all the other things which are established in China, but nevertheless, over the centuries, they've absorbed. And if you look at these three um, roots, Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism, they're a little bit like the three theological positions we talk about in the West. Which, what is the nature of God? Is God transcendent? In which case, one can say, most, you'd be a very affirmative that God is transcendent. Therefore, that is looked after by Buddhist practice. Is God imminent? Of course, he's imminent too. How could it be anything else? But then you are looking at what the Confucianists set up, and that is how to make sure we, we legislate for um, practical political life and how to get the best relationship between human beings so we get the least amount of conflict. Then, the third position, which is always the most intriguing one, and that is, God is also transcendently imminent. That's the Taoist position. They're both anarchists on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, they are, the highest thing is to actually try to get totally in with the harmony of the natural world, and, and to see that you are no different from anything else in the universe, and everything in the universe is within you. So, in a way, that seems to me to be why those three channels were able to keep, to, to keep going, and, and because they were all looking after a, a fundamental, uh, mysterious, eternal, if one can use the word, eternal truth. Right, I, have, I can only speak for so long, I have to have pictures, you know that, so... <laughs> we have the first picture over there. God willing. I don't have to, that's right, that's great. I don't need this line. The Chinese, the, 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 one of the obvious things about any civilization is the relationship between human beings and the natural world that they find themselves in, what we currently now call the environment. And the way in which the mountains, the trees, the rocks, and the clouds, and the virtually invisible things all mingled together was, has been and will be always very fundamental to the development of the Chinese cultural spirit. This is just simply um, the landscape was seen as something to be contemplated, something to be meditated upon, and the way in which the clouds would um, dissolve the mountain and the mountain would return again through the cloud would be always seen as a metaphor of the way ideas and thoughts come into the mind of the individual and, and retire again. So the aim for both Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism was to achieve 
the state of the one, as they called it. And that state of the one was something which was a property of each different part of the natural world, but it was also the way in which you found your own reality. That is to find that you are nothing less than part of everything else. Everything else and yourself are one. There's nothing in that picture which is on the wall because it's inside you because you've taken it in through your eyes. The only reason you know that's on that wall is because it's inside you. You're perceiving it. But at the same time, this is what Brian was saying about the problems with the modern scientific world and the modern scientific practice is that the receiver is not, the knower, is not taken into account. So if this is, in a sense, um, I'm going to suggest this image is to raise the idea of Taoism, Buddhism, and the mysteries involved therein. Confucianism, I'm going to use a different image altogether. And that's inside one of the important buildings in the Temple of Heaven in Beijing. And it's part, very much part, of the way in which um, Chinese civilization was brilliantly organized. And um, we use the word Confucianism to represent that. Uh, Kang Fu Tzu, or Confucius, was only one of the philosophers who um, brought together um, the traditional understanding of what was good music, what was good ritual, what was um, correct behavior, and so forth, and was uh, condensed. He and his grandson, I think I'm right in saying, I am going to make mistakes here. Please, any Chinese ladies or gentlemen present, forgive me, but Mencius, who is Confucius's grandson, I believe, he and Confucius are the two people to read to get a really good grip of the foundations of Confucianism. But here, what we're looking at is looking up into the dome, four major columns representing, of course, the four fundamental forces in the universe, eventually getting up, and here we have the dragon and the pearl. The pearl, the dragon is always chasing the pearl, the dragon is the spiritual energy in oneself or the universe, and the pearl is the state of oneness that one's trying to achieve. The dragon is always trying to hold it down. But the dragon, by nature, is a dualistic, is a yin-yang creature, and is um, the energy of the exteriorization, which we call the creative world. Next one. There's a great masterpiece of Chinese painting. Um, and once again, uh, the vast majority of it, more than three quarters of it, is about no thingness. And that's very careful to use the word nothing, uh, because in the West, nothing tends to mean nothing. But if you actually look at the word nothing, it is actually no thing. And here, um, the idea of that which is inexpressible is, is really a lot greater than that which is seeable and expressible. And built into every Chinese painting here is a symbolic metaphor for the journey of life. Here you see little people crossing the bridge here and then slowly finding their way to a little tiny dwelling where they're sitting in which they can then contemplate and with their perception rise to the highest. And this is also considered to be the root of the human body as well. This is the root of the dragon because the dragon is also the energy, the spiritual energy which you harness and it's the energies you raise up through your body. So. Um, these things are quite clearly the basis of Chinese um, medicine and so forth. All these things can be discovered and found out. But they were put in this beautiful pictorial form, and the natural world was held in great reverence, because the natural world was direct reference to how we ourselves were. Next one. 
what we were just looking at was up inside this building here. We were looking up inside the interior of it. This is the Temple of Heaven in Beijing, most extraordinary uh, <coughs> place to visit. It's now <coughs> open to the public, which is very nice, and a lot of people go. You can see it's very crowded. But in fact, it was built to be used once a year by one man. That huge thing, and that was all to do with the emperor who <coughs> had to go into a particular building. I'm not quite sure where it is. Maybe it's a little bit further back. And he had to spend a month eating the right food, doing the right meditation. Then one correct day, he would walk the whole way and he would prostrate himself here and pray to God that he would be able to rule correctly for the rest of the year. Now, I may not have got this absolutely accurate. And if I do have a Chinese historian present. I'm going to be taken to pieces by the end of this thing. But nevertheless, I'm pretty near telling you something which is what I learned when I was there. And it is an extraordinary experience to actually to walk down there and actually to come into here. We'll come back to this. This is, really, this is a whole cosmology, very obviously so. And remarkably like Stonehenge in principle. Because when the Roman historian Varro first came to Stonehenge, he wrote back to Caesar. He said, they have a spherical temple in the west of Britain. And um, nobody ever made quite what sense he meant by spherical. But quite obviously here, this is rather like the painting, the rest of the sphere is metaphysical, the three concentric spheres. Maybe the knower, the known, and the knowing, as Brian talked about. Next one over there. No, 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 the next one. That's it. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> um, within here, um, the current um, Chinese government have been very kind and have uh, taken a clue from... Madame Tussauds, and we see the emperor sitting in correct position inside one of these buildings. And um, here you get, um, it's both austere and grand at the same time. It's quite, quite remarkable, but there we go. He sits there quietly, doesn't need feeding, or doesn't need to breathe. Next one over there. Whereas, if one can say the, not the opposite to that, but the, in contrast to that, the Taoist, as soon as he can leave whatever duties he's got, domestic duties, he will find his way. This is his architecture, as humble as it needs to be. There's always one little servant boy, which is symbolic, actually, of the body serving the spirit. Little servant boy, and the, the sage will sit in, in, in um, quiet meditation, just simply looking at the natural world, therefore, and seeing the natural world as properties of himself. So the great paintings of China whether the, this is quite unusually um, horizontal, usually there's the mountains, the verticality is there. But this, this symbolizes the Taoist who was completely uninterested in any sort of grandeur, and any sort of massive gesture in, part, in, in terms of govern, governance. Next one over there. No, other way. <laughs> That's it. Um, here again is um, another image. Um, this needs to be focused a bit. And here we have somebody who is from a very comfortable um, economic background, but he also, um, as far as he's concerned, this is how he's going to spend his weekend, as we might put it. So here he is, and he's got this little, his architecture is merely bamboos. And they seem to have been clustered a little bit just to give a there. He's quite happy here. Here is his, his servant self. I'm being a bit naughty brown here, playing with games and stuff. And um, two other parts of himself are making sure that when he's here, he actually can be transported um, into um, the inner domain 
But this is a very good example, this painting here, of all the conventions. Chinese art never, well, it, it, it did, but it very rarely was held in high esteem to go into color. It was never necessary, support necessary to go into color. If you can't get color with black and white, then you didn't, you haven't yet accomplished. So all, all these conventions of how leaves are painted, how rocks are painted, how little things are painted, are all very closely allied to, um, as I said before, the, the calligraphy. Next one over here. So, on the one hand, we have this magnificent, and as I said before, I took this picture myself, I'm quite pleased to say, and I was very, very pleased. The, the, um, well, I have also to say that the Chinese people are extraordinarily happy people. It's a strange thing to say. I didn't see any sign whatsoever of stress and strains in the streets in China where I went. Neither did I see any poverty whatsoever, or anybody begging, or anybody appearing to be poor. Now, the flip side of that was the whole country had been benetonized. Meaning, everybody seems to be wearing the same clothes, and there's a flip side to it. But nevertheless, extraordinarily, they were very happy to be photographed. I was very careful to ask people if you mind being photographed. I'll show some slight pictures in a minute. But, next one here. <laughs> this is one of the latest hotels we built in Beijing. This comes from um, me, I did an, uh, an exhibition, I took a slide of the thing in the exhibition. But this, this is totally extraordinary that, that they can take on this and, and, and uh, seriously place that in the middle of, of Beijing. And you might, might be anywhere, um, not least of which in um, a place in America where you do a lot of gambling. But that's the only other place I've seen such a building. But it is absolutely extraordinary, age that we live in, that somebody who started drawing comics um, in Chorley Wood in Hertfordshire, landed up be being a multi-million influence on the planet called Walt Disney, and, and could actually, in the end, uh, get a civilization like the Chinese civilization to think it's a good idea to put that up. Maybe they had tongue-in-cheek, I don't know. Or more likely, there's a great deal of money behind it. Anyway, next one here. Now, the reasons for this kind of thing are to do with the romance of industrialization, whatever that romance might be. And as you see, the little boy, or the owner of this motorbike, so loves this motorbike. It's such a symbol, important. So this is on the university campus I took this picture. So important to him that he actually wanted to sleep on the motorbike rather than go to bed, sort of thing. And it is an extraordinary thing, that this, this symbol of status that, that, that um, mechanization gives people and people. No doubt many people in this room are deeply involved with the status symbol of their mechanization. But where does one stop from this romance to getting to that? I mean, this is the huge question mark. Next one over there. This is normal daily life in John King, where I was. And um, this is the monument here, the Liberation Monument. Not quite sure what they were liberated from, but and forgive me, that's reasonable, um, reasonably naive politics on my behalf. But the word liberation and liberality, in terms of the liberal arts in medieval Europe, meant the liberation of the soul from attachment to materiality. The liberal arts were to liberate you from your attachment to the material world. I'm not sure there's anything to do with what this is about. But nevertheless, here you see the effects of advertising theoretically is not allowed in China. So I can't quite see how or what all that is there. Unless I can't read Chinese, I'm pretty sure it is advertising. But nevertheless, 
This is daily life in the city where I was. Next one here. Yet, um, not too far from there, small car drive away, I asked when I was the guest to be allowed to go and see some Buddhist um, art in the Buddhist monastery, and I was dutifully taken to this place here. And in this particular part of China, the, the emphasis on the, on the uplift to the roofs is, is extreme. Um, and less subtle in many ways, but, but everything about Chinese architecture, like the calligraphy, has always got a most beautiful lilt to it, uh, uplifting lilt. It's rather like the edges of the mouth was slightly smiling, which is, which is wonderful. So here, and here, here was not too far away, a particularly important area of Buddhist cave art where there's sculptures carved out of the rocks and they're painted and very, very beautiful. So here we have exactly the same as nearly every other civilization, ancient and modern, living side by side. Next one here. Now the other thing which intrigued me was on the, the campus, um, the people who were working, um, and they were actually putting up the stone wall, quite honestly, these two were probably working no differently than they would have been working if they were putting the Temple of Heaven together way back in whatever century it was that it was built. Both of them, curious enough, um, had what he's doing, they put the stone in place, he's now chipping <coughs> off the edge of the stone here to get, to get the quality that he wants. The tools are completely um, spontaneous. He's found a bit of metal and rounded off, and what he's using as a chisel, he's actually made himself out of a rebar. You know, the, the metal that we put inside concrete. <coughs> a lot of rebar is delivered to any modern site whose concrete's being poured. So these craftsmen here took little bits off the end of these steel and made their own chisels. And here he is, all he needs is a hammer and a chisel, devised by himself. Next one here. China's a very big place, um, very obviously so. And on the whole, most of us, certainly I'm speaking for myself, brought up in this country, we were never told much about China. It was very big, there were a lot of people, and the number one thing I was brought up on was there are too many of them. It was an absolutely disgraceful sort of statement and very typical of, of, of the sort of arrogance of the West. There are too many of them. Nobody actually said it's one of the greatest civilizations on the planet and it always has been and it's um, equal in a sense to India in its maturity and its stability. But here you have all the different... And you can see from this, for instance, um, how, what, a, what a huge range of north-south there is, meaning that it's, it's re relatively cool up there, and, and there's Beijing, still being called Peking on this, forgive it, and it's, it's pretty hot down here. So there's going to be a huge range of differences of different kinds of Chinese expression of culture. Um, just an extraordinary thing. This is the Great Wall. Um, I beg your pardon, I think that's, <laughs> that's not the wall. That is the Yangtze. But nevertheless, um, I hope we'll come onto the wall. But the, 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 the building of the Great Wall of China is another extraordinary feat. And anybody who's been there and been on it uh, almost can't believe it. I mean, Hadrian's Wall is nothing. Um, next one over there. So the landscape in China is, is, is absolutely exceptional, and um, any, any traveling one does, even if it's in a highly agricultural part, which I travel through quite a lot, um, is absolutely extraordinary. The, how a civilization which is four or five thousand years old or more um, has actually sculpted the land 
they say um, good government is rooted in agriculture, and in the education of any normal um, person who was going to be an educated person in China, um, to be educated in, in hydraulics, hydrology was as fundamental as being educated in mathematics and anything else in agriculture, because they have sculpted the land, <coughs> we'll see in a minute, so that by, by minute balances of inches, each, the water is, is filtered down through the fields um, to get the maximum growth of rice. And this is one of the reasons why when they asked me to speak, I asked, can I please tell you some of my reactions to what I've seen in China? And one of my most horrific reactions was that the people who worked on the land were leaving the land very fast. And they were taking their sticks with their chains and their big discs for carrying things into the town. They were hanging around on the, on the city corners just to be um, uh, carriers of television sets and washing machines back to people's flats in the town. And there was a very, very definite um, signs of neglect of the, of the balance of the fields. And I just said, look, if you're going to lose your calligraphy, and if in any way you're going to diminish your agriculture, your whole civilization may, might be doomed. I mean, of course, I was sent back packing to Europe with another nutter who visited China, but nevertheless, I said my bit. Next one here. And it's one of their great sayings in one of the great proverbs of China, popular proverbs, good government is rooted in agriculture, unless you have an understanding. And here, these fields are balancing the minute amounts of fractions of an inch, quarter of an inch sometimes. The water is flowing down this valley, and every single field um, is balanced so that it will let its water gradually into the field below. Look at a mess we get when we have the whole winter of rain. And the, the farms are flooded, we haven't got any sense of, of that kind of thing. But this is absolutely extraordinary. The next one over here will show you that, that not only did they do the valleys, but they would go up the mountains too and organize the mountains to grow food and things like this. So this is as much Chinese architecture because it's the architecture of the civilization. You can say a civilization is based on its grain <coughs> storing capacity. <coughs> the capacity for a nation to store grain is its capacity to find the time to become a civilization. That's quite an important thought. And when you neglect your agricultural roots, then you have real problems. The moment that is pretty, I'm afraid, unfortunately, rather apposite. It wasn't intentional we to put this together while we've got this crisis of agriculture in our country, but once you lose contact with your affinity to the natural world, and your affection for and duty towards the animal world, anything can happen, and goodness knows it is. Okay, so next one here. Um, this was a lovely uh, translator. This is Nick Smith, who some people might remember or know of. He was very much part of this foundation when we started. And uh, here we are underneath in the university where every year a new sign is painted on this huge wall, and it says things like, be a good student, work hard, and achieve. You know, there always has to be a big propaganda thing up. So, we, as I can't read it, um, forgive me, but it says something like that. <laughs> Next one over here. But what was so nice, and here again, as I said, just to confirm, every time I tried to take a photograph, these school children were running through a bank to get home. The bank didn't stop them going through one door and out another door. And I thought, this is, this is, this is pretty relaxed. Uh, I don't think that happens here in England very much. So I, I said to the kids, can I take a picture? And oh, all smiles, you know. So I took, I took the snap of it. But really extraordinary. 
we'll come back to more pictures. <coughs> Next one. And here are the students. This is Nick and I were both the speakers at the university, and there was this extraordinary <coughs> interest. Most of the people who came around to talk after the students who spoke fluent English, which was quite remarkable. This is right in the middle of China, um, farthest away from almost any other country, I imagine. This is our translator, who was wonderful. And this was the interest in trying to find out how we approached architecture and why we approached it the way we did. Next one over there. Now, the problem is, this is prize receiving architecture in the architectural school. These are the architectural students. This is what they're being given prizes for. Now, I can't do anything else but to say how much that saddens me, but we had to be immensely tactful because it saddens me just as much to see that kind of thing here. But that kind of architecture has been quite clearly disgraced by any normal standards, scientifically, socially, any way you want in the Western world. They're bringing them down as quickly as they can in America. See lovely films of dynamiting them. They are a social disaster. But China has just discovered the amount of money you can make on a small site by piling everybody up on it. And it's a very sad um, part. And plus the fact they want to say we are in the modern world. Anyway, from what's another thing which is quite could be very, very good, but turns out to be relatively disastrous is these students and the architectural department of the university is also the people who are conducting the building and design of buildings. And the idea was a very good one, that academics should actually be in there and try and keep the higher standards for architecture in, in the city. But unfortunately, this is what you get in the next thing here. Next one here. They never much reason in China before to have gone beyond two stories, occasionally a bit more. But here you go. These are the shop and the shop front, and that's what's going up. I don't know if anybody here lives in such a space like that, but um, it's very, very hard to say that one is very comfortable. It's an extraordinarily beautiful view out, but there's not a very good view in, one might say. Plus the fact that if you happen to have a breakdown on your lift system, if you happen to be an, a pensioner living at the top there, it can be extremely embarrassing. As we've actually found, in, there's a local tower block right outside my house, and they had not only a breakdown on the lift, they actually had a strike of the people who were mended. And so the social workers were almost getting heart failure, taking food to the top floors to save the pensioners who couldn't get down. Anyway, uh, enough of that. This is, is what is happening. How long it'll happen for, I don't know, but this, this is, there's a legacy behind this, which is very interesting, too. Next one there. At the same time this is happening, I went along the, the taxi rides along the streets of Beijing, and time and again, gaps in the street, all these extremely beautiful and extremely well-made medieval houses were just being bulldozed down because they got a lot more money to make by putting high-rise very sad, from my, my point of view. Um, there are obviously very good um, population and economic arguments, as Brian said, quantitative arguments for doing it. But God knows they have no understanding of the difference of what's going to happen to the psyche. If the person ever discovers they've got a psyche in a place like this, this is, this is um, all men are equal, I think, or all ladies are equal. I don't know what it is. <laughs> we used to call it mouth organism, and that is a mouth organ that you play standing upright. But next one over here. <laughs> So, um, it's very, very interesting and useful. We've had to do it in this country, and I joined 
His Royal Highness Prince of Wales here in this foundation because the prince was willing to say, let us go back to the beginning and see what we've lost. And what is the beginning anyway? And is the beginning something which is always there? Which in, in fact is the position that Evans takes. But here is one of the earliest recorded houses um, in the Chinese tradition. And based on the four posts, which is common to nearly every tradition, the four posts being north, south, east, and west, the four parts of oneself, the four um, borders, and then the, the big sloping triangular forms, uh, which shed the rain and are protective and so forth, and actually represent the angle, whichever way they go, towards the unity at the top, which is the <coughs> principle of one, before it divides and becomes many. Next one there. Now, that is an example of what a Taoist temple. There are Taoist temples still quite alive. They, they, no publicity, but there are people I've met in this country who have been to live in northern China and gone into, for 10 or 15 years, into these Taoist temples and learned a huge amount about the ways in which the internal workings, the internal spiritual workings of the body can be taught for each individual to, to harness their energies. So Taoism is still very much alive, Buddhism is still very much alive, but they keep a very low profile. It's not politically correct to be involved in these things. But one mustn't be fooled into thinking the Chinese have actually destroyed these things. Of course, it's another story in Tibet, which is another thing. Next one here. This is the diagram that I think. If you want to take any notes about this lecture, this is the place to take the notes from. <laughs> this disarmingly simple diagram unites the body, the environment, the directions, and the numbers. One, two, three, four, five. And the ways in which the numbers are drawn and written is, is significant. What the south stands for is fire, spirit, and breath. Incredibly important. I really would recommend, if you want to take any away from this lecture at all, it's worth taking notes of this. Because this, as far as I can see, is absolutely perennial. It will always be true, certainly for China, and you'll find it's not at all difficult to transpose this to any tradition at all. In the East, we have the, the elements in China are fire, wood, water, metal, and earth. Not quite the same as ours, earth, air, fire, water, and ether but only a, a transposition according to the... So we have fire, spirit, and breath at the top. We have water, body, and generative force down below here. We have metal, the corporeal soul, and passion over here, the emotions and passions over here. And on the east, wood, the incorporeal soul, and nature. So there are two souls involved. And those two souls involved are extremely important. Going back to what Brian was saying about the triangle, I'm very glad he talked about the triangle, the knower, the known, and the knowing. So we've come to that. But it's in the knowing, there's two inner qualities you have to know from, to be a knower. One is to know what you have learned from being in a body to cope with this material world. One other part of your ability to know is the higher knowing, which is called buddhi, and that is where the word Buddha comes from, buddhi. That is to be able to make contact with the ever-true. The ever-true meaning those principles would never change, and that's what perennialty means, that's what Temenos is trying to protect. <laughs> so this uh, can give you, uh, and, uh, those four, those four 
posts in that early Chinese house are the four posts which these stand for. And the hole, often in the top, where the smoke left, would be the hole through which also the grace of the spirit would come down into. Next one here. Now, this is going back to the 18th century BC, just to give you a little touch of how ancient and, and, and the Chinese... These are the first graphies, as they're called, of uh, drawings of houses, which became um, letters, which became sounds. And the, the, um, they're all... I can't pronounce this, but it's xi, something like xi, and it means house. And from the very elementary things, um, also one can see different aspects of the house and different things happening within the house. Often this, the house is both on side and plan at the same time. But the, these, these are the evolution, very, very early, and they were, they were scratched on bones, the, the original graphics of China. So writing in China started very, very early on and has been continuous ever since. And for me to go there as a rather innocent and naive Westerner and to find they were, they were talking about giving up their, 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 their calligraphy for, for typewritten Westernization, I just could not believe it. I didn't think it'll happen. But even to see typewritten calligraphy, I, I find quite painful. Next, next one. And here is the whole, literally the whole, of a 3,000-year-old tradition. The wisdom of how to build in China is extraordinary. Simple posts, simple beams going across, and then these running laterally to hold the roof supports for the tiles. One very, very important little feature, which hasn't been put on both sides of the story, little feature here, where the little lilt, the little smile at the edge of the mouth is, is on the roof. The roof is always going to be swinging. But here is the absolute basis from that, from, I think there's another one here, which is a primitive house. Next one here. Here is um, what they believe how some of the very early houses became, now being stretched out to accommodate animals and people. But again, this strategy was taken to its highest degree for two or three or four thousand years. Absolutely no need to reinvent any other kind of architecture. The freedom with this being, the point being that an earthquake can go through this building and everything will wobble and shake, but it won't come down. And look what a legacy we've taken to, for instance, India. How many people were killed in that earthquake in India? They were killed because the concrete was crushing them. If this fell down, okay, somebody might get bruised. They've almost never fell down. They, they take the heaviest earthquake. Possibly the earth wall might come down, but if it did, the likelihood of somebody getting really hurt was minimal. And on the whole, the, 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 the process of poising, balancing these timber beams this way and this way on each other meant that an earthquake could go through it and it would wobble and shake, but it wouldn't come down. The Buddhists used to have an architectural saying, no glue, no nails, no string. Three things. No glue, no nails, no string. Can you imagine anybody building a house in this country which didn't fix anything? The insurance people blow their tops. Nothing here is fixed. It's all poised. The wonderful act of faith. Next one here. So we'll just see how, what sort of... Here we go to the degree of sophistication. Now, each one of these are just sitting in a, um, this shape here is also coming towards us when we see them like this. These ones are where they're sectioned. And once again, big heavy um, beams going across, wonderful columns, all of which have their own laws of proportion eventually. But the earthquake would rattle through all this, and the building would not come down. A lot of very, very heavy timber up there. 
and keyed in like that. All these things are just simply resting on each other and just keyed in, and they can move um, to quite a degree. They were designed to move to quite a degree. That's highly specific. Next one here. And then um, the other thing they, that, that the China, this is a drawing which shows that in perspective a little bit better, although not so many of these wonderful uh, little notches, hanging things. But they realized that um, psychologically, it's nice for the eye to be able to go right up into the roof. What does is, what is the word ceiling mean in our language? It means seal comes from the French, uh, heaven. This is the ceiling. We're in a very good space here because we're up in the knower, the known, and the knowing. We can, we can wander into the triangular space of this roof. Once you've got a ceiling in here, a flat ceiling, it's not the same experience at all. The Chinese realized that, and they also poised these beams. They started making the beams lift as well. Not only was the roof lifting, but the beams were lifting. Next one here. You see how the beam is cut? So that it, it is actually looking as if it's floating. It's a pretty heavy item. But by looking as if it's floating, it takes the psychological stress from the people inside the space thinking it's going to fall on them. Next one here. And even... These sort of little, like piggies going to market, I'm afraid. I mustn't be too rude about it. <laughs> they even got to the point of carving all sorts of details into um, these curved beams, so that they really were remarkably curved. Next one here. I suppose China has its Baroque periods too. Now, at the end of the house, the wall at the end of the house, <laughs> this, is, this is the beam and lintel system here. The brick wall at the end had this wonderful sweep on it. In this case, and the next one here. I beg your pardon, I haven't quite got there yet, but this is a case of how they even would bend the ceiling to, to get that, the, the uplift. What you get is rectangularity, triangularity, and the curvature of circularity. The three forms, the circle is the symbol of the transcendent, and the upright, the square, the imminent, and the triangle, the transcendentally imminent. The triangle is always the knower, the known, the knowing. Those three forms, as I showed in my last lecture, are the basis of Japanese Buddhist architecture. Next one here, then. It must be here, can you me? No, no, can I next one here? Because I think I've just... This is the other strategy. You remember we saw the basic structure of the house is built like this as it comes this way. The end wall, to stabilize it, can either be built like this. Can we go back one on there? Or there. You see what... Um, freedom of expression the architect has, if you want to look at it that way, and the freedom of symbolic expression. You can either finish the end of his house like that, little tiles, or like that. Now if we go on to there, here we are, I'll try to make a notice if I get, we're in Xi'an, Sansi and Xi'an, Xi'an region. And here you see an example of um, one kind of wall end, and here that kind of wall end there. And these are very simple I was very fortunate to find this book in a bookshop again in London of absolutely beautiful little drawings of houses right across China. So I'm going to run through these relatively quickly. These are quite simple, modest houses. Again, you can see the range of expression in them. Next one here. And here is a house where quite an emphasis on using the bent branches of a tree as well as the straight branches. A, a larger house where most of the living is done at platform level. And Basically, timber, compressed earth walls, and bait earth tiles. Very simple, very simple economics. Mother Earth and, um, if you like, the natural world together being enough. No need to mine 
for, to metals as they need for plastics, dare I say. Just extraordinarily simple ingenuity. Next one here. And here, um, again, characterizing the quality of Chinese, but not unlike um, the Islamic ethic, where you don't go marching straight into the private part of the house, you go in and have to go around and be invited into different levels of privacy within the house. And the courtyard in China, in a similar way to Islam, was called the Eye of Heaven. The Eye of Heaven, not only meaning the, that you're under the maximum source of light, of privacy of light, but the Eye of Heaven was also, obviously, you're being watched at all times, if you like. Some people don't like that one, that's all right. <laughs> And so here we have, going further north in, in, in China, um, heading towards Tibet, and colder climates, much more massiveness of walls for Tibet. But again, these are all, these are two separate drawings in different perspectives. These are the water supply. The drainage of the roof into this courtyard would be the catching of rain and snow, and it would be a, a form of water supply. They may have had a well as well. But uh, lovely. Um, way in which little symbolic features were put into the house, which are um, non-functional in terms of, of living in it, but, but highly functional in terms of symbolic meaning. In exactly the same way, this little feature here, this little circle of heaven in here, and the circle of heaven over the door as you go in. Next one here. And Tibet itself, where the, the, the what we call the battering of the walls, the sloping walls become very much part of it but having to stand up to very cold winters. And again, the courtyard, again, its own characteristics. Next one here. Then um, a rather more expensive townhouse where you have all this as your private garden and play area. And I'll come back to the garden, a very, very important part of all Chinese uh, ways of life were to do with the natural world being put into the garden. But again, a disposition courtyards, private courtyards, as well as main family courtyard. And this extraordinarily beautiful rhythmic movement. The walls are in rhythmic movement, the roofs are in rhythmic movement, and there's nothing dull or static about this architecture. Next one there. Next one there. Three Beijing townhouses together. <coughs> and, or it could be one big house with three branches of the family living together. <coughs> the older and <coughs> more dignified members of the family would have their own courtyard at the end, and the, the, the father or grandfather of the family would be a scholar or a painter, and that's where he would be found, and the um, rest of life here. But you can see, again, this wonderful relationship between the draining of water to, to each, all the rooms are being, each roof is being functional and gathering water and the privacy of the different courtyards for different parts of the family. Next one here. This is a public space, a rather lovely public space, and this, extraordinarily fortunate to have found this little book, which I can't read a word of, but I can read the pictures, as they say. Um, this public space, um, again, has, the, has echoes right through every civilization. It could be in a medieval town in, 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 in the UK, it could, could be in an Islamic town, but here we have the shops and the bazaar, but also where public ceremonies took place. Now, there's a drawing of this situation looking this way in the next one here. And you can see, of course, um, the idea of sitting out cafes and places to sit above lanterns. This is looking up into this building from the piazza. This is another drawing that here. 
Next one here. And again, the, the, another district in China where the, the extreme, more, more likely to be in the area I was in, Chongqing area, where they really went to town, almost boat-like. In certain parts of the world, they were called boats, and the boat aspect is part of it. But all that lovely rhythm up here, but quite stability here and quite a lot of stability in the, in the geometry. We'll come to Chinese geometry, is quite extraordinary. And little features of the horns or ears, Hear no evil is what they mean. Next one there. Oh, don't look into my bedroom window. Next one, timber framed halls. And this is just giving you an idea. I, I, forgive me, but I tend to talk about this being the first, coming up to the first millennium. And that's because I come from the Christian part of the world. But uh, this is an extraordinary period in China. And some of the greatest, um, you can see at this point still quite a degree of defensiveness about the amount of, before the building is put. But these are different kinds. Next one here of timber buildings which grew up. Um, that's to 1038. 11.03, um, but you can see this wonderful gentle curve. Always, none of them would dream of being anything else with this lovely gentle curve. And here, 12.70. I mean, it's interesting to actually remember that um, we haven't been had, a, had the woad wiped off our bodies here in this country by then. We haven't been saved by Willie the Cock. Next one over here. And this is just a quite amusing little drawing. One of these um, the European uh, people who wrote a book on China just showed what's the difference if he, if he drew it, if it was straight rather than if it was. And it is extremely interesting how, how heavy and, 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 and over serious and even oppressive this roof becomes just by taking that curve out of it. It's pretty, it's pretty sophisticated to get that element of curve, but that, that's just an example. Next one here, and this just shows the range of different styles of roof that were used, just some of them anyway. Forgive me, the slide's not as good as it should be, but just to show the different ways in which the roofs were treated. Next one there. And now the other thing is the relationship between Chinese architecture and, one might say, the natural world, the garden, water, all these things were absolutely essential. And um, many times, this extraordinarily beautiful idea of a totally circular door to walk through. Even the Bauhaus never got around to making circular doors in their gardens. But nevertheless, here we have this extraordinary experience of, of if you've ever walked through a circle, it's an extraordinary experience to walk through a circular door. And again, um, the, this is both a symbol and a fact, the whole point about water as an element and basis of life and so forth. But the crossing of the bridge and crossing the water is obviously, a, again, a perennial symbol. But the interesting thing is the amount of trees that are found, um, we would tend, if somebody started planting trees in front of the, say, for instance, the British Museum courtyard, and they'd happily put some glass over it, plant trees in front, oh, that would be sacrilege, you wouldn't be able to see the lovely classical proportions. But as far as China's concerned, this tree is just as dignified and important as that extraordinarily beautiful pagoda behind. Next one here. And here's a very, very typical domestic garden. Sadly, some of those drawings that I showed you before, the line drawings, didn't actually show the gardens. But this is a very, very beautiful and typical um, garden. Here you see that circular opening. It's not the same one, in fact. But here's a little private garden. Not very big, but with these extraordinary... You could actually say that Chinese, like Japanese civilization, was built on bamboo. Bamboo is an extraordinary and miraculous thing. 
I, I didn't discover it until I went to Africa. Bamboo is grass. Just grass that got out of hand. And, and, and it grows to 70 feet tall in one um, season in where I was in Africa. And, 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 and uh, six inches or more around in one season. Amazing stuff, bamboo. They eat it, they paint it, they love it. And, and, and the whole civilization, musical instrument, absolutely extraordinarily beautiful. But here, what do you see? You see bamboo, you see natural bamboo doing its very graceful and beautiful symbolic thing in the leaves and so forth. Then you see split bamboo put into the first level of geometry. Then you see a rather more sophisticated geometry here. Then you see an even more sophisticated geometry behind here before you get to the tiles. So it's very interesting, this transition of geometry, the practicality of geometry in Chinese architecture. And these are the screens and the doors which sometimes were transparent, you could see between these. Sometimes they just had a certain kind of paper which would let the light through. And, uh, but these were the, so here's an example. And for my Islamic students who are present in my department, you can see what an extraordinary thing. The amazing amount of Chinese geometry, almost never, ne almost never, um, exactly alike to Islamic geometry. It's absolutely fascinating. Geometry being a universal language, and yet, I mean, even this is very interesting. Just to, to let, if you just let your eye travel that, and travel that, and see what what it does. What you soon find, this is doing this, and then it's doing that, and then it's doing this, and then it's doing that. Whereas this one is actually quite stable as it goes up. But there's a hint that it's actually firing off at the sides. And there's a very small transition between these two. But that's something else. And this is always an intriguing symbol of chi or the spirit, and that is what is an outline becomes an inline. The outer world turns to become an inner world, just by the flow of one single light. This is what's happening inside you, that's what's apparently happening outside you, if I could just suggest that. Next one here. The other thing the Chinese as well as the Japanese perfected was weaving. And the weaving of three is very, very unusual. We normally weave in, one's going across and one's going up and down, wolf and weft. Here, the weaving of three gives rise this lovely geometry of a, a diamond form, uh, which makes a, a, a spiraling six-pointed star in the middle here, and even a hexagon which begins to look like a cube. Um, it's like, it's like we start perceiving it as a series of cubes that the eye has tricked. But this weaving, three-way weaving, the doubt the knower of the knowing and the known, Brian. <laughs> um, next one here. They also, in the screens, that which is an absolute fundamental basis to Islamic pattern making, here there's um, this you would find maybe in Islamic pattern, but um, little else. Extraordinary how this, for instance, is a screen on which there's a pattern, and then there'll be holes penetrating through the screen. And these are just ways in which the Chinese use this grid. Now you can show a hundred ways in which the Muslims use the grid, but didn't use the same kind. This is quite extraordinary. Next one here. Now I can't spend much time on feng shui. It's become very popularized, and unfortunately a lot of rubbish is talked about it. But the whole of the orientation of a house is fundamental and has deep philosophical meaning. I think the previous diagram I showed you is the most important one. But here you have the eight directions. The eight directions are quite simply, you take a square, which is called the static square, and you take another square through it, the dynamic square, and then you have eight equal points. And um, whether, here are the elements, fire, earth, metal, 
Um, and there's two metals here, then water, earth, wood, wood, fire. So you have two earths, two woods, and two fires in the way they work. Here are the, what's called the paqua, the receptive and the, and the creative, the, the eight basic movements between totally positive and totally negative, or yin and yang, and the yin and yang as a movement here. And then such things as human life up here, um, recognition of fame and, and ambition, and down here, um, career prospects and so forth. These have to be taken with a great pinch of salt. And the trouble is, the West has taken rather journalistic attitude towards them and oversimplified them. So this has got a great deal of important meaning in, for the Chinese. Next one here. And this is the whole study itself. And here's an example of how a house is planned on this principle. Um, in other words, the living space, the courtyard will be here, living space here, not far off the entrance will be two bedrooms, bathroom here, storage here, another bedroom here, and the kitchen here, and the dining area, living and dining area here. This is very simplistic, but the numbers involved in here are very, very much important link between a universal pattern and the individual people who are going to live in that house. Each person's birth number, birth date, even dimensions of the body are taken into account so that when the house is made, it is actually clads that family as a unique family. And the measurements are often taken from the head of the family, sometimes from the lady, sometimes from the man of the family. And, and these numbers are all part of a mixture of um, and the, the measurement of the body and the um, measurement of the heavens, the movement of the heavens. Next one here. So when you get a house, this is a section through the house here, with the two courtyards. This is a transition from the first level of privacy to the second level of privacy. These were guests would be uh, not unsimilar to some Islamic houses. Guests would be entertained here, and then if you were allowed to pass through here, you got into the private family part of the house. Um, and what's interesting, again, very similar to Islam, if these doors are opened, you cannot see straight into there. There's this privacy, little privacy barrier. But here are the arrangement, beautiful symmetrical arrangements of the house, and that's what it looks like. And the status of this part of the house is the final. Um, this is where the head of the house would um, be in meditation, painting, writing poetry, um, and making his or her relation to the heavens. Next one here. And this is, again, what happens is from a very simple house, the first one I showed, rather a better off sort of house here, to somebody who's really got a big family and jolly good income, and they can have a series of courtyards. And not only that, the, the servants would come in and service these from side. But this, this is a large... Um, a person of status in, in, in the society, and that status and, and the, the series of courtyards becomes reflected in the end in the design of the whole city. Because in, the Chinese, in Chinese philosophy, they talk about the rectification of the individual will give rise to the rectification of the family. The rectification of the family will give rise to the rectification of the village. The rectification of the village will give rise to the rectification of the whole area and, and the city and so forth. So. What is true for the ethos of how you live in a family house, next one here, can give you an idea. Here is the Forbidden City in Beijing, and the way in which the whole city of Beijing is, is only an extension of the same principle here. And in this case, one's dealing with the ruler of the whole of the Empire of China, and what I, we, I showed you one slide of the Temple of Heaven in here, where the emperor has come once a year to prostrate and, and ask God to, if he should be ruling. Uh, wisely for the benefit of the whole nation. But this whole arrangement of the inner palace here is only um, a glorification and a, a huge expansion 
of a family house. Um, I say only, maybe much more than that too. Next one again. Right again, what we're doing now is that that is an aerial photograph not taken by me, not in a helicopter, from here looking this way. I beg your probably about here looking down the axis. And what we're looking at there is this place of prostration and then this inner place here and this whole walkway. It's a, it's a wonderful experience. We managed to get to Beijing. It's, it's wonderful that it's open and, and the public can walk in and experience it. But it's absolutely extraordinary to think the whole thing was devised with very few, if not only one person, um, to use. But that was an understanding in the Confucian mind of the hierarchy of creation. There is only one God, and there are certain people who have to take on a huge responsibility in the, in the view. And that the person who takes that responsibility should be treated as a single responsibility. If he's not up to it, well, of course, that's another problem. Nevertheless, that's the way they did work. Next one there. So this is from ground view, looking from here this way. I'm on these platforms, and I'm taking a picture through the doorways, and this is the way the public are coming through all these areas here. I'm taking a picture this way from here. Make one there. And again, the ceiling of these buildings look like this. Again, this one's much clearer, the dragon, and the pearl is here. That is also an image of you, if I may put it that way. Those forces are maybe beautifully painted up on the ceiling, but they're also <coughs> reflecting the inner nature of the, of the viewer. Not only that, this thing is a cosmology, and the numbers, of, the numbers involved here will all be, all be cosmological. Next one. Next one here. Right, that's a, an older photograph of this situation, but I wanted just to have a look at this because this is really very, very beautiful and extremely extraordinary. And I'm very grateful to one person who was a slightly older contemporary of mine in the Architectural Association who decided to measure this building. I'll come to that in a minute. Next one. Th th this, these platforms. I'm actually, I didn't take that picture myself. <laughs> But it's uh, absolutely talking about Stonehenge being a sphere. But um, obviously, one person was very taken with the fact that the rainbow happened to be. He obviously ran around this side of the platform and took the rainbow. But I think it's also nice to see the umbrellas too, because you know what an umbrella is? The umbrella came from honorific Buddhism, and above the Buddha at any given time was an umbrella, a spiritual one, which we'll see later. Um, just suspended there in spiritual space. Not didn't need a stick to hold it up. My umbrella didn't need a stick. Anyway, it's just this extraordinary um, beautiful juxtaposition. Next one here. And this again is um, we're going to have a look at these paving stones. And this is again me walk, walking around it, trying to get a sense of, of, of there are always interesting branch bring up this triplicity. It's all coming out everywhere. There's three entrances here. And you can you can decide which one's the known, the known, and the knowing, but nevertheless, and there are four basic ways of climbing these platforms. And each time you climb a platform, you are actually ascending into the cosmological planes as according to the Chinese esoteric system. Next one there. And here it is. Next one here, I'd like to put two together. Um, I'm sorry about these wide-angle lenses things, but 
in the middle of this platform is a single stone, which has an absolutely extraordinary acoustic value, or acoustic properties. You can stand there and you can um, sing a little tiny note, and it, it, it does an extraordinary expansion principle. Unfortunately, what tends to happen, once the Chinese tourist industry knows that, um, you always get somebody rushing to get to the middle stone and making terrible noises, and there's no chance to hear the sudden. But we did have a chance to, to hear all the subtleties. But if you're on that center stone, which is the stone on which the emperor prostrates himself, the first circle of stones around that stone are nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And from then on, every circle of paving stones is a multiple of nine. So there are 18 stones around that one. There are 27 stones around this circle, 36 around that one. Until you get to 81, nine times nine here. And the whole point about this nine times table is whatever you do, it's multiple of nine, eight plus one equals nine, seven plus two equals nine, six plus three, everything about the nine times table is about the perfection of nine. Then from then it moves out 10 nines, 11 nines, and so forth. It's from a German book you might notice. Uh, right out to the furthest thing, 243. Two plus four plus three equals nine. So the whole of it is a cosmology in nines, um, which is quite, quite extraordinary. What, you've got one of the seams coming down here. Um, there are nine seams which are going to run through. I think some of the students who do the ninefold pattern may remember these seams and the dividing between them. Next one here. So I wanted to move from there into calligraphy because, again, not only is bamboo the fundamental nature of Chinese civilization, but also calligraphy. This is the modern Chinese ideogram, as it's sometimes called, or, or character, sometimes called, or symbol for bamboo. That says bamboo. And here, I think this is a perfectly good statement here. Calligraphy is intimately bound to painting in which the elimination of the essential is a primary rule. Here are six strokes, one, two, three, four, five, six. Two culms and their attendant foliage. Sum up culms of these things and these are the foliage. Sum up the grove in which each stalk can hold up to 80,000 leaves. So there is a dense summary in pure calligraphy of the essence of bamboo, according to the Chinese. <coughs> and as we've just had a lot about round temples, this is the character for the word square. Uh, again, in rather, rather beautiful calligraphy. If you, um, I don't think my next slide is about the paintbrush, but it will come up. If you understand how uh, Chinese calligraphy is done with a, with a normal brush as we have them, and you can see what an incredible skill it is to get these marks to be virtually uh, rectangular almost. An extraordinary skill behind it. It's, it's, it's the highest art um, is the art of calligraphy. Next one. Now, next one there will show the whole painting. This is one of the tragedies what the Western um, image makers and bookmakers do. They take the little bit they like to look at here. This is a very, very, very important person. This is Huineng. Huineng's commentary on the Lotus Sutra, which can be found in modern print, is really worth finding. It's an extraordinary little book. It's the Lotus Sutra, the commentary by Huineng. Now, Huineng is just demonstrating top Zen. He's, a, he's the sixth patriarch. That I means he's the head of all the Chan Buddhists. Chan became Zen and went to Japan. And here he was um, quite early on. He was, he was not himself. This was painted in the 13th century. But again, the brush marks are no different to the brush marks used in, 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 in writing, and yet they're describing 
amount. And they're describing a, a master who is quite happy just to be seen to be trimming bamboo, like the most humble um, other person in the, in the community. This, this wonderful sweep is actually a symbol of his, his, his um, if you like, his importance in divinity. This is a flow of grace coming to him, one might say. So here's Hoi Neng, and if you ever want to find out something good about China, try and get the book, um, The Comments on the Lotus Sutra by Hoi Neng. Next one. And here's my other favorite man. Um, I'm, he's even more my favorite now, I've seen this painting of him. Um, he again was the great synthesis of the, what I call the first millennium. He lived between 10, 1100 and 1100 by our calculations. His name is Chu Si. When I first used to lecture about it, one of my students said, I think he was a sneeze, but that's um, must be respectful. Um, Master Chu, or Chu Tzu, and he actually did the most remarkable thing. He put his, his philosophical books were always directed towards how to conduct your daily life, not how to go into some extraordinary intellectual gymnastics, which is what, of course, so-called philosophy has become in Europe, so-called. And so his wisdom was good. And what I love about him is a man of immense humor. Nobody could have a face like that without having a wonderful sense of humor. Although his book of jokes hasn't survived. <laughs> but this statement by him has survived. And this is, this is worth a little bit of thought. This is mainline synthesizing uh, Confucianism. It's not abstract Buddhism or... or um, highly esoteric Taoism. This is Chu Si, whose works became the basis of education in China after his time for, for, for hundreds of years. Of course, the trouble is, what is material force translated? But nevertheless, the translation is the best one can find. But the original Chinese words for all these things, like nature, like eternal, like material force, like nothing, like principle, all these words have at least four meanings. And so translation into modern English is always a huge problem. But this is pretty unequivocal. And that takes a little bit of, it's worth a little bit of thought. What, in a sense, is being said here is material force is the externalization of things. But uh, nature itself does not always externalize itself. Next one here. Now, I did say earlier the two people to go for if you want to understand Confucianism, as, as it's called, are Confucius, who lived between, as you can see, he was a contemporary of Pythagoras, which is rather interesting, and Mencius, who um, lived uh, beyond him. He obviously wasn't his grandson, but he was a relative of Confucius. There's his dates. And they talked about these four principles, the four columns, human-heartedness, which can also be called love, of course, the reason why modern scholars don't use the word love is because in America it only ever refers to sexuality, which is exactly not what's about. So they use the word human heartedness. Righteousness, which sometimes can be better translated as right wayness, or in Sanskrit, dharma, right way of behaving. Ritual observing disposition. This is respect for tradition. And finally, the most important of the lot, wisdom. But sometimes, trustworthiness was added. So those are the four basic columns, very simple, the four basic columns of, of Confucianist point of view. Next one here. And again, um, <coughs> quite early on, uh, Sumatan 
uh, was able to say, there's a whole school of logicians. Um, we've been plagued desperately by logical positives in modern times. And of course, had they made a little bit of a study of ancient Chinese history way before BC, they might have seen the unnecessariness of it. The logicians, any simple terms, and so lots of common sense. It is the most extraordinary beautiful summary of, of logical positivism. Next one here. This is a, a, what I've done is I've moved from one school, which is Confucian school, to the logician school here, or a comment on it, and now moving into the Taoist school. And in chapter 42 of the Tao, here we have mathematics, the basis of architecture and measurement, as well as being the basis of philosophy. How generates one. In other words, there is something before one. And in the book of Tao, it says that Tao is indescribable. Nevertheless, the word Tao is used because it's the word way. Tao generates one. One generates two, which is yin and yang. Two generates three. Three generates all things. Now, from there is a commentary by a man called Ho Shang Kung, one of the early commentators on Lao Tzu. And this is... Um, because Lao Tzu is incredibly terse, and this is all he says. And you can take it to death, or you can just take it and leave it. But here he starts unfolding it, and I say, Hoshan Kung, Tao generates one, Tao. And Tao generates the beginning, the beginning is one. One generates two, which is yin and yang. Two generates three, which is yin, yang, and the harmonious. Incredibly important. Two points are joined by a line. That line represents relationship. A relationship. The word relationship is equivalent to cosmos. Without relationship, no cosmos. Two points, if they are unaware of each other, would not even be two points. Therefore, this is an extraordinarily important thing about the three. The clear and the turbid, <coughs> the three atmospheres which are divided in heaven and the ground. <coughs> the harmonious, the clear and turbid, the three atmospheres which are heaven, the transcendental, earth, the imminent, and man, the transcendentally imminent. Three generates all beings, heaven and earth, and man together with generate. Here is the function of these things. Heaven expands. <coughs> so you see, way back, and many, many hundreds of years BC, the exploding universe was definitely in fashion. Um, victory to one of our elderly um, scientists who's still trying to battle against. Anyway, um, heaven expands, earth changes. That's one thing nobody has any problem with. And Plato made it a fundamental basis of philosophy. Don't waste your time studying. This stuff, why is suddenly it's changing? In one of the Greek philosophers, I say, if you step into a river, the second time you step into a different river. So to base, um, which modern science tends to do, to base an attitude as to what reality is on things which are always changing is actually an incredible piece of absurdity. So, uh, <laughs> man, this is the function of humanity on the planet. Man educates and nourishes. So here you see again a return to good government and limited agriculture. The function of man is to educate man. Very simple. Um, maybe too simple for some people. Next one here. And again, Chuangzu. Chuangzu, to forgive my pronunciation, those who know how to pronounce Chinese things, very hard. Chuangzu is the second most important Taoist and <coughs> wrote. Absolutely wonderful things. And he, just a very, very beautiful, it's rather like saying Tao generates one. What is Tao? It's a mystery. But that which makes things to be things is not a thing. And that just is reminding us between physics, which is thingness, which is what modern science claims to say it's all there is and that's what we're investigating, and no thingness and the principle 
that makes a thing a thing. Okay? <coughs> Next one here. That's just a little bit of excursion into Bao, and I just decided to use this image to just be a reminder of what the sage would be happy to be sitting in a little humble dwelling looking at the natural world and using the passing images of the natural world to remind him of these profound truths about the, um, the permeation of divinity, one might say, the, the subtlety of things, the constant changing of things, and things right on the border of being seen and not seen. This is rain coming down in Colorado, it's not going to China at all, but nevertheless, it's a nice one. Next one here. And yet there's the other view, which I haven't quite come to yet, and that is the Buddhist position. Next one there, I think, is the Buddhist position. Next slide there. Inside there is clarity. There is no need for a light, full stop. Inside there is clarity. The self is deep, yet explored. Now that is an example of the light which is inside, in this case, shining out through this image of the Buddha. And again, um, radiating from this third eye, as it's sometimes called, the eye which Plato describes in his works as worth 10,000 of our fleshly eyes, the eye of wisdom, the eye of perception, worth 10,000 of our fleshly eyes. That is the clarity and the light within. <coughs> and the geometry of this, the, like the sacred geometry of the way in which the divinity of this, this, this is the food body of the Buddha, this is his last incarnation, but this is his Buddhahood. And it's absolutely extraordinary in all the great traditions these radiant forms uh, occur. And therefore they have to be a reality, not a, just a, a, an invented symbol. Next one here. So, going back to something I was touching on before, when this temple was built, this tree was planted, and the measure of the spirituality and success of the temple was measured by the success of the spirituality and, and, and vitality of the tree. So by no means was this tree going to block the, the appreciation of the beautiful architecture. The tree was the living symbol of the, the, the spiritual basis. This is our temple. Next one here. And very interesting, as you walk through here, your head is in heaven and your body is in earth. And this is another example of that. Buddhist position, there is no need for light, the light is within. Within everything, nature or the temple, is the Buddha nature. The Buddha nature is the basis of architecture, and it's the basis of the natural world as well. This is just a little illumination from a manuscript. Next one in there. Don't worry, we're going to the next one here. Ah, my dear man, next one here. Dear man and dear lady, no, sorry, here we go. This fella here, um, was a man who sold me one of my um, square squares in, in quite near Chongqing. I went to visit the Buddhist temple there, and this was a little marketplace outside, and I just thought, that. Now, I saw this wonderful thing here, and I thought it said, Han Saw, but it means hand saw, and it was made in Burma, so it was hand saw, and it said, so there's an export. Whereas this beautiful square thing he had beaten and made himself. Now, this touches on that earlier thing I was just saying about the tree and, 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 the, and, the, and, the, and the architecture. Here's Cheng Hao. Cheng Hao was a contemporary of Chu Si, or, or Master Chu, one of, his, one of his mentors. And this is his state, which is very beautiful. Man is not the only perfectly intelligent creature in the universe. The human mind, in essence, is the same as that of plants and trees, birds and animals. 
It is only that man receives at birth the mean, that is the proportional mean of heaven and earth, the balance of material force. And sincerity, simplicity, sincerity is the way to unify the internal and the external. Without sincerity, there will be nothing. So this is again an extraordinarily beautiful statement and boy, do we need to learn that again in our contemporary world. Next one over there. Um, this is what we've exported to China, God bless them. This is what you put in a shop window to put clothes on, normally. I don't know what, what was a degree of humour involved in this high street in Chongqing when this... But these Western Barbie dolls, life-size, um, were on sale for people to put in their shop windows and dress. And they're all uh, European. Quite extraordinary. But that same paradox goes with the, all the other things they've inherited from Europe. Next one here. But... While this is so, and as I call, forgive me, and I hope the Chinese nation will forgive me by talking about the Benettonization of the Chinese people, um, here in, in the Miao people, as they're called, in, in, in southwest China, this is normal daily dress. And these people, I would have said to my students, and I've said it to anybody who wants it, if you want, you ask me who the best dressed people on the planet are, I will tell you the Miao people are. These people make their own embroidered cloth clothing. And it's absolutely extraordinary, the skill they've got in sewing and the fact that they're quite happy to dress like this, against this wonderful, humble background. Next one there. So just to go back to the Buddhist temple just outside Chongqing, next one here. There's the contrast. Here's the city, and there is countryside. Uh, and, and this is being looked after. And not only is it being looked after, in this uh, Buddhist temple, of which the staff of the university would not come in with us when we asked to go there, which is then being politically correct and being a little bit nervous. When we got in there, there were, there were Buddhist monks from the age of probably eight upwards running around. So it was perfectly alive. There was not a lot of old men finally dying on their feet. And Buddhism was alive. It was very much alive. But this is what they decided to take on. And, and, and we've no right to be critical of this because we've done exactly the same thing. The only extraordinary thing is this is one of the most earthquake-ridden um, parts of the planet. And the Chinese have been the masters of all through the whole history of China of putting out buildings which do not come down in earthquakes. So it is just totally surprising. And that's all I can say. Next one here. Wang Qi died at the age of 33 and was one of the greatest scholars so the Chinese say, which is a wonderful thing, some of the only 33 from the one of the greatest scholars. He did a commentary on the Tao Te Ching, on Lao Tzu's book. And this is a lovely, lovely um, part of... Move on to the next one here. This is what has happened close up. Um, and the close up here is these high-rise buildings sort of go... Then the mayor of Beijing got really upset with these high-rise buildings, and we were like, ah, gosh. And the mayor has quite a lot to say for things in China. And he said, they haven't got hats on. <laughs> Every high-rise building from now on must have a hat on it. And you see the hat? <laughs> Extraordinary. Can you imagine Ken telling everybody to put hats on their buildings? <laughs> Can anybody take any less? <laughs> Frankly, I'm very happy they wouldn't put those hats on. I think they're very much better. But what I, worries me is why do they have to... No, next one here. So here is one. Um, forgive me, this is, is 
Chinese, but it's also Japanese at the same time. Chinese civilization went into Japan. That is the way one is written. And I've shown this. This actually says love, which is rather nice. But um, in Islamic um, calligraphy, proportioning to the way in which calligraphy is done is done in a similar way. And here, it, here is a rectangle of a certain proportion in which the, the word or letter one is written. Next one here. This is the Buddhist temple that I went into. And what, here is all the joysticks, and here is the smoke coming from the joysticks. And these, this is part of the traditional decoration which is kept alive. And, and there's a lot of beautiful sewing work done by ladies, no doubt, um, and uh, beautiful um, quilting work um, on the zafus in which they do their meditation. This quilt, quilting work, the patterns were exactly the same that my wife does with her quilting, and exactly the same as people do in South Africa or any part of the world, an extraordinary universal geometric language of, of, of patchwork quilting. And here I am in the centre of China, miles away from anywhere, and here this extraordinary quilting being done with zafus on which the Buddhist monks sit to do their meditation. So we haven't got a picture of it. Next one here. Next one here. This is the way in which the Japanese and Chinese hold the brush to paint with. And an extraordinary thing, it comes from heaven to earth this way. We hold ours in different kinds of angles, but very rarely do you know anybody who draws holding their brush absolutely upright. And, and you can see this brush, this chain, many brushes that we have, and to make rectilinear forms of this is incredibly skillful. Um, next one here. Next one here. There is the result of a painting again, and uh, my slides have got slightly out of sequence. Here is the location of architecture, and the final journey, the painting is about the final journey, every day, if you like, not in the life, is for the individual to actually try to surmount the physical world and look upon it for what it is. And there is the final individual, um, having got his home to, uh, surmounting the, the mountain, the mountain being symbolic of the labyrinth of our physical existence and the other symbolism. Now, this is about painting. Next one here. Um, sorry, no. yes, that's right, that's fine. Uh, here's a conversation that was written AD 920 between a farmer who was an enthusiastic farmer who liked painting, and he found an old man sitting doing some painting in the Alex Farm, I think. So he started speaking to this old man, and, and, and the farmer said um, to him, what do you mean by likeness, and what do you mean by reality? These are very, very deep and fundamental questions for painters. A likeness, replied the old man, is what you get when you portray a thing's form and you miss its spirit. In other words, what photography became. Chen, reality or real essence, means when you have captured both form and the spirit, or when the spirit is left out, the form is dead. <coughs> if there's no breath in the form, the breath is dead. I apologize, I said. This is the farmer who's writing this. I realize that calligraphy and painting are the occupations of great scholars. I'm just a farmer. I've tried my hand in it, but I cannot do anything with it. Will you teach me? But I don't think I can ever paint. The old man said, human desires are the pitfalls of life. Wise scholars delight in music and painting to take place of the different desires. In other words, music and painting are that which elevates you beyond the plague of, of sensual desires, I might say. Since you're the right type, you should keep on. Then what he says is, these are the reasons why you shouldn't paint. Now, this would be an extraordinarily shocking thing to modern painters, I'm sure. Hence, those who have buried their innocence of mind should not paint. Those who love luxury should not paint. Those who fight for power and money should not paint. 
Those who like to play up to the popular taste should not paint. Those who have a low and vulgar mind should not paint. All these types of people find themselves in the world of world oppression. They have nothing to do with culture and refinement. The artist must have the passion of a hobbyist, or an amateur, one might say, a lover of it. Now, this kind of thing, can you imagine any painter surviving in the modern world? <laughs> anyway, enough of it. Next one there. Next one here. Um, Brian, I'm so pleased you brought up this triangle, because this is the earliest of the Shang, um, very, very ancient Shang, uh, graphics as they're called, the beginning of writing. And this is the nearest to the spirit world that they represent. This is a sanctuary. This square form, this curious thing, is a sanctuary. This is a spirit being. And you know he's a spirit being because he has one single eye, but he's, he's, he's surmounted by a triangle, which again is the knower, the knowing, and the known, being one thing. I'm absolutely sure about that. There is a, a spiritual being in the sanctuary. Now, the next one here is um, the process of approaching the sanctuary and, and, and the sacred temple and so forth. This means two, two people, two people, two bananas if you like, two people go into this building, they are offering precious objects in the sanctuary and, and this is the response coming from the higher being. Now the word, for the, the, the graphic, graphic for heaven um, is, is, is incorporating his body, I'm not tall enough to point it, but the two legs and the, and the four, apparent four arms is the current calligraphy for the word heaven. But there again, single eye, the eye worth 10,000 of your fleshly eyes, and the triangle above. That, in Buddhism, that's called the all-knowledge of the Buddhas. This form is called the all-knowledge of the Buddhas in Buddhism. This is not Buddhism yet. This is way before Buddhism came anywhere near China. This is the earliest forms of writing. And the things they wrote about were the only things that mattered, and that is propitiating the spiritual world, to make correct offerings to the spiritual world. That's what the, that's anything writing should be about in these days. Next one here. I hope I'm getting relatively near the end of this talk, so it's rather long, I apologize. Here is an image of Lord Buddha. And from that, um, it's not difficult to find the sacred geometry. Here's the sacred geometry. Very accurate and very precise and very meaningful. Um, going through the basis of his, the foundation of his body here, which becomes a triangle. <clears throat> to the, can you see the little seed of wisdom at the top of his head there? And the center of this, which is the earth, if you like, earth, air, fire, and water, not earth, air, and fire, and water in the Chinese sense, but the four elements in the fifth one. That is between this and the beginning of the lotus form, and the triangle, which the center of the triangle being on his heart, and that also is the center of the circle. The center of the top circle will be, again, his third eye. So this geometry, heaven, earth, and no, 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 consciousness, we can say. The triangle of consciousness, which is what is human animal's function is. Heaven, his glory of the Buddha, and then the earth, which he has surmounted. Next one here. <coughs> now, I've used that in my own work, but it's a basic inspiration for the three circles which go human being. I put the sh shadow of the human being inside the human circle, sitting on the earthly circle, of which... Halfway up the earthly circle, here's the square above, is the physical world. And then from this point, which unites all three worlds, to the heart, the crown is the center of the higher world. And the equilateral triangle can be drawn in two different ways. Now that I've symbolized for myself, and it's the way I do my, or we do our architecture. I might say next one here. Those three circles can stand for, if you wish, 
the transcendental one where Aki comes from, Aki means unchanging principle, then this one where Tekt comes from, that is the way of doing, and Ur means materiality, this is the circle of materiality. I don't know if Michael's here tonight, he probably isn't, it doesn't matter, but this is the basis that the Kabbalists draw their tree of life on. But the, this is called the lower face of the soul, the upper face of the soul, this is the consciousness of the soul, the higher world and the lower world. It's just the same basic geometry. Now from that geometry, or this geometry I should say, um, the Buddhists made their architecture, and their architecture was uh, the Buddha nature. Next one here. There is, that is as far as the Buddhists are concerned, that is the body of the Buddha. As is the rest of the universe, but that is what you're looking at. You're not looking at a building, which you are, of course. You're looking at a pagoda. And that pagoda, or pagoda, is there to symbolize the whole of the Buddhist universe and is the body of the Buddha. Now, uh, an analysis of that building I found extremely exciting and very, very interesting. Um, next one here. That building was put up before William the Conqueror landed on our island, by the way. <coughs> Here's um, an extraordinarily beautiful drawing done by a Chinese architect um, in the 1930s. An extraordinarily skillful piece of architectural rendering. I mean, absolutely inspired. The whole of the universe, of course, is represented in <coughs> a top little piece, but here are the different floors. And behind these doorways, each one are, if you like, stages of Buddhahood. Coming down, actually. Next one here, we'll show that, I hope. I hope this carries down the room. Next one here. There's a section through that building. Here is the final Buddha. The same sort of size that Athena was in, in, in the Parthenon in Greece and a lot of the traditional temples, this giant form. But these are the different aspects of Buddhahood coming down to be present here when people came to visit Nuka. Here's the size of the human being. There's a little tiny thing here. Now, every floor had a Buddha nature on it. There's a human being up there and right up the very top. And then again, a reproduction of the universe up the top there. Now, what I, I became absolutely fascinated with is the sacred geometry is, is, is really very simple and very direct. And it's based on, um, in a sense, one might say, the idea that the material world is one twelfth. This is a very strange thing to say, so if you want to take a note and work it out afterwards, one twelfth, the material world is one twelfth of the full cycle of, of the unseen universe. But that means that if you take a circle and you take an angle, which is one-twelfth of that, that is the manifestation will take place in that. So that came to me from analyzing this building. And I, the modules I'm using are the modules set by the uprights, which are holding the whole building up. Next one here. Each one of those tall, thin triangles, whether we start from the first step here, the outside of that column, the middle of that column, the inside of that column, the center of that column, the inside of the column, or the base of this Buddha, each one of them gives us significant positions in the Buddha bodies as it goes up. They are all emanating this 12-fold amount of energy making up the top. And then there's this major equilateral triangle coming from this step to the center of the Buddha at that point here. Now that I found, to me, very, very helpful. And then, a little bit more looking at it, I suddenly thought, well, well, well how does this how does this work? Well, of course, one can't answer that. And it obviously has something to do with the quality of moving in to be in the presence here. You, you go through these different rays, one might say, to get to the presence. But then I said to myself, well, what's all this about? We think of roofs as shedding rain. 
These roofs are not shedding rain, they're shedding grace. Each one of these roofs is actually shedding grace from that Buddha into the community, if I can put it that way. I mean, this kind of talk, I can say that kind of thing, can't I? Guess. What's grace? Who's grace? Okay, well, anyway, that, that's quite an extraordinary thing. Okay, these are the way in which, radiating from the top, these positions position the Buddha's position here. But then we find all these. So that is not only an image of the Buddha, and the Buddha body, but it's the way in which that building is benefiting spiritually the community. In much the same way as the two towers at Shark Cathedral are standing blessing the whole of the grain growing area of France. But we don't think like that. Nobody teaches architecture like that. They talk about functionalism. What the hell is functionalism? What about the spiritual function? What about the social function? What about the cultural function? What about the psychological function? None of these are talked about. It's always functional. It's got clean lines. Watch out for anybody who tells you about clean lines. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I haven't got a great mind. Okay, next one. <laughs> just an image of the kind of Buddha figures which are on those platforms. This extraordinary world. This is actually what I was taught by my Buddhist teacher. This is the Buddha. This is just merely an incarnation of a body. So that's something else. Wow. But here's the, here's the building. It's still standing there. Built before William the Conqueror came. Made of wood. Still standing after all these earthquakes have rattled through it. Millennial building. <laughs> Much better than some millennial buildings. <laughs> Next one there. And again, in the... Buddhist caves in Chongqing near the university there where I was taken. What's so beautiful is here's this wonderful creature. Um, I've been looking at this. I, I say creature because it, it's extraordinarily androgynous. Extremely beautiful woman, or it could be extremely beautiful man, it really doesn't matter too much. But then in what might be taken as a hairstyle or a hat or something, suddenly all these spiritual properties have been brought into concrete form. The flaming jewel, two of them. This, which is extraordinarily like the serpent that comes out of the third eye in the Egyptian tradition, then the little Buddha nature, which is inherent in all beings, and so forth. Next one here. Now, I did promise to tell you about where umbrellas came from. You don't need to believe me. Note the umbrella. Nothing holding that umbrella up except the divinity of the Buddha. And from that umbrella are hanging these things, and that is... Um, a way of understanding that sacred architecture is hung down from heaven. It does not get built up from earth. And in fact, that was very clearly demonstrated in the early Christian chapels in Europe, where they put all the woodwork up, they put the keystone, the top stones up first, and then put the stones down to meet the ground. It didn't start on the ground and build them up. So, as Plato said, great things are laid up in heaven. We can find them. Not only that, these worlds in which the Buddha inhabits are geometric worlds too. Extraordinarily beautiful painting, Chinese painting. Next one. But for the Taoist, it's enough for him to find all that in the natural world. The circle of the sun and moon, the triangulation of light, the triangulation of light is still the no and no and no. And the horizontality of, 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 of the peacefulness of water, and then the uprightness of we who look at it. Next one over there. And again, one of the best examples that I could find of a tree which is planted at the same time as the building was built. That tree is as much a spiritual lesson 
In fact, there are many Taoist meditations where you just stand like this. It's called standing like a tree. And it's meant to be the best physical exercise you can do. I was delighted to find this meditation. <laughs> anyway, there we go. Look at that tree. I mean, if that doesn't stun you in, in, into the mystery of the natural world, and yet all this has its own you know, human conventions and beauty as well. Next one here. <coughs> Again, the Taoist paradise is to look at these things. These are the things to surmount in oneself. These are the miracles of life and so forth. And the clouds moving the chi of hell. Next one over there. The, the Confucian position as in opposition to. Next one here. And again, uh, this, this is in focus, but that's not. This is a wonderful painting from the Song Dynasty, and uh, naturalistic painting ability in China for, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. But Confucius was about trying to make sure human life is orderly. And there's nothing basically wrong in that. It's just that um, one mustn't neglect the higher because one's dealing with the lower, presumably. And this is what we've got now in China. And it is very difficult to be invited to China and be discreet and be diplomatic and be polite and to see these extraordinary errors that are being made, which we made ourselves in the 30s and 40s and 50s and even up to the 70s. And of course, some people still are making these errors. But socially, they're a disaster. And everybody who's ever studied the social life in town buildings know they're a disaster. They're carcinogenic architecture, as far as I'm concerned. What is this? Any knowledgeable person in the audience know what that is? It's remarkably Chinese, is it not? It is the main mosque of Beijing. That is a mosque. And that shows you how um, a new religion that's been taken in can actually... Here's the interior of it. <coughs> it shows you what a civilization does when a new religion comes in. You can tell it's Islam because there is the... Statement at the top here, and this is Arabic writing all the way over here. But pretty unlike any mosque you've seen. But that's what happens when a new religion comes into China. They will accept that new religion as long as it's um, through their own forms. Next one there. We're nearly there, I think. Next one there. Just a very, very beautiful example of, of beautiful austere courtyard. I thought this was very much bigger than it was, and I suddenly realized this is a little man here. I thought a man might be about this big, but in fact... It's wonderful grandeur without the proportion. Next one here. <coughs> if you want clean lines, they could do it. This is going through three garden spaces. What a meditation. But they were never cruel enough to put sharp corners on their rectangles. This tells you always a little echo of heaven, however rectilinear you are. Extraordinary uh, sophistication. Next one here. And for the Taoist, it was a matter of soaring up the soul, the natural world, the meditation of the natural world, the constant changings of the natural world. Next one here. And just last thing I'd like to touch on is the meditation on the natural world also leads to an intellectual understanding. Using the word intellectual as the transhuman intellect, not human intellect. Here we see the form of a cloud and the form of mountains. And here we see the form of a tree. And the form of the tree and the form of the mountain, curiously enough, are based on the same inner geometry. Next one here. And there it is. It's absolutely extraordinary that these forms come out of, again, ridiculously simple. This is actually the mean angle here. But one bifurcation, 
becomes two bifurcations, becomes three. They get smaller each time because the laws are structured. And we see this wonderful progression, which is very similar to the progression of our turning of our hand. And so these forms, in however complicated they become, are, are inside the nature of a tree. They're inside the nature of, of, of a cloud. And so we can extract these invisible forms and forces, or we can just simply see them performing. It's up to us. Next one here, I think then nearly done. I found this in New York. And I thought, well, we do have problems. And it is quite good to remember we're all sitting on the same sphere. But um, forgive me if that's a little bit near to being flippant. But in fact, um, in the end, the, the, the nearness of Chinese civilization, the nearness of problems they have are exactly the same problems that we've got. Sorry, I've been so long on that. Thank you very much. Well, one thing you can always say about Keith is you get your money's worth. <laughs> I couldn't possibly attempt in any way to summarise such a wonderful uh, journey into the Chinese tradition, uh, especially uh, fascinating to me because I've never actually heard uh, Keith talk on the Chinese tradition before. Is it the first time you've talked on the Chinese tradition? No, but anyway, it's the first time I've seen him do so. And just coming back to very briefly to something I said at the beginning, I think what, uh, when I said that Keith was absolutely of the essence of what Temenos is about, I hope that you, like me, will see in, that, in this talk we've had tonight, uh, you've been able to witness how, for the want of that sort of knowledge, we have arrived at the world we have now, which is in crisis in just about every department. This idea that the world out there has got nothing to do with what goes on inside us. Uh, Stephen, have we uh, run out of our time for questions and so forth? Yes, I'm afraid. Well, rather have Keith, perhaps, and uh, run over time with Keith than have questions. But thank you very much, Keith. And uh, I look forward to seeing you all again on April, Monday, April the 2nd, when Keith will give the last talk about Neoplatonism and cathedral building in, uh, in the West. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Keith. <laughs>